Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're you, of course. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. So just out of woo, just out of curiosity, um, if you want to comment, we'd love to find out who you are. You don't have to. You can just watch us like creepers. That's okay. Um, for those who don't know who we are, we went to Carnegie Mellon uh, School of Drama together, and we decided to move out to LA, and then we decided to do this podcast together. Uh, yes, and we decided to put the podcast together because we wanted to give you guys something that you could listen to while you were driving to work or doing dishes or maybe just walking your dog around the neighborhood, just something to where you could get. If you don't have time to read an entire book, maybe you have time to, to get in a story or two. Um, and we also want to give a shout out to everybody who is uh, staying home and social distancing and wearing masks and and doing what you can to keep not only yourselves and your families, but other people and their families safe as well. So thank you. And authors and writers, if you're listening, we are almost done with our first season and we're going to be looking for new writing. So make sure to go to our website, see the guidelines and then submit and you might be on our show. How cool is that? Yes, and speaking of our show, if you are a podcast listener and you haven't subscribed to YouTube or if you're watching us for the first time and you haven't subscribed, please take a moment right now to go to that that wonderful little red button and just click it and be subscribed and show us your love. And if there's a particular story that you find fascinating and compelling, please take the time to, to go to the episode and like it and um, leave us a comment. Let us know what you liked about the story. Let us know what you like about your podcast. We would love to, to hear from you guys. And um, if you would rather listen to us and you just don't want to watch us at all, it's okay. I, I understand. Uh, you can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher and uh, subscribe and download to the podcast there. We're also on social media. So if you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, uh, make sure to follow us there. If you use Twitter, make sure to use the hashtag NRSS podcast. And if you would like to know more about Jeremy and I's individual works, my website is meganamorrison.com. And if you sign up for notifications, anytime I post something about a project I'm working on or something that's going on with my, with my writing, then you'll get a notification in your email box. I do the same thing with mine. Uh, it's jeremyraystories.com. And you also, every week, get a new micro story of 100 words or less, all genres. So check that out. Check one of our websites out, or both of them if you'd like. And I think we are now ready for... Cranky time! All right. Uh, so those of you who are just tuning in, and I apologize for those who's loyal listeners. Um, <laughs> they have to hear this description again. It, the Cranky is a giant timer that is black and white. It has a circle on it with 5, 10, 15, all the way to 60. And when he goes off, he is really loud. And Jeremy and I thought that it would be important to have this timer so that we didn't babble on and bore you guys too much. The bonus is Megan always freaks out. So just watch for it. Yeah. You won't miss it. <laughs> okay, are we ready to crank cranky? Crank cranky. 
All right. So um, staying in line with our story that we're going to read later on this evening, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of my favorite short stories, which is called The Kite by Somerset Maughan. And um, Marie Corelli, who we're, we're going to be reading today, wrote in the Victorian era, which is the late 1800s up into the 1900s. And uh, Somerset Maughan had his heyday at the beginning of the, of the 19, 1900s. And he wrote this great story called The Kite, which is about this guy who goes to visit his solicitor, his lawyer, and he's asked for a divorce, which was very, you know, taboo at the time. And the the solicitor's like, why, why do you want to get a divorce? And he's like, well, my wife destroyed my kite and I just can't be married to her anymore. And then it goes into the story about how he used to fly the kite with his parents and you know, how he's really connected and his wife became jealous of the time he was spending with his parents flying this kite. And so finally she couldn't take it anymore and she destroyed the kite. And it's really, it's really well written and it's, it's, it's really like emotional. And I, I really resonated with this story because I feel like it's so indicative of how when you're in a relationship, you have to figure out what are the, the things that are important to your partner. And even though, you might be jealous of that thing. It's also important to give them the space to uh, to have that thing, even though, um, you know, you might think it's just a silly kite, but to, to your partner, there's a, there's a deep emotional connection that you can actually destroy if you destroy that, the, the thing that represents it. Is it, is it in public domain? No, no. it's not. I looked, it, I looked it up because I really wanted to read it on our podcast, oh, but it's, it's unfortunately man. not in the, in the public domain yet. So um, maybe I'll write Somerset Wands estate and ask them oh, if my oh, we can get permission to, to read it. Cause it, it is oh, a, that'd be cool. it is a great story. I just, I just love how, cause every time I tell people about it, they're like, Oh, okay, that's funny, but it's actually very deep and very emotional. I started reading your recommendation, Megan, Ali Wong's memoir. Uh, Mom, this isn't a recommendation for the book, but this book has already been <laughs> recommended on the show. So I feel like I'm okay to say I am laughing my butt off right now. Like she is like Sex in the City, you know, like she has like that Sex in the City sort of humor. So if you like Sex in the City, and I think it's probably outdated now, and there's some things that are probably offensive in it. I, I, I know it was big in the 90s, but that humor, if you like that humor, definitely read her book. Like her introduction is brilliant. She basically says, I'm an idiot. I'm not just joking. I'm actually an idiot, but still listen to my book. I, I love it. I love it. And uh, um, I don't know if I meant to. Yes, you got her. Oh my gosh. Yeah, another year off my life. You need to stop saying that, Megan. I, I should, I should. That's That's kind of morbid. All right, so um, so moving on. So tonight you guys are in for a treat. As I mentioned before, we are reading The Hired Baby by Marie Corelli, who was um, who who was a one of the superstar writers of her time in at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. And she outsold all of her male contemporaries. This was Arthur Conan Doyle and Rudyard Kipling and these, these really big names. And she was just basically like outselling them all. Together and combined. That, 
combined. together combined. And she got uh, the critics, of course, didn't like her as much as goes the case with most popular fiction. Um, but she was read by the Queen of England and read across America and the colonies at the time as well. Um, so we are really excited to be able to bring her to you tonight. The Hired Baby by Marie Corelli. A dark, desolate December night, a night that clung to the metropolis like a wet, black shroud, a night in which the heavy, low-hanging vapors melted every now and then into a slow, reluctant rain, cold as icicle drops in a rock cavern. People passed and repassed in the street like ghosts in a bad dream. The twinkling gaslight showed them at one moment rising out of the fog and then disappearing from view as though suddenly engulfed in a vaporous Aben Sea. With muffled, angry shrieks, the metropolitan trains deposited their shawls of shivering, coughing travelers at the several stations, where sleepy officials, rendered vicious by the weather, snatched the tickets from their hands with offensive haste and roughness. Omnibus conductors grew ill-tempered and abusive without any seemingly adequate reason. Shopkeepers became flippant, disobliging, and careless of custom. Cabmen shouted derisive or denunciatory language after their rapidly retreating fares. In short, everybody was in a discontented, almost spiteful humor, with the exception of those few aggressively cheerful persons who are in the habit of always making the best of everything, even bad weather. Down the long, wide vista of the Cromwell Road, Kensington, the fog had it all its own way. It swept on steadily, like thick smoke from a huge fire, choking the throats and blinding the eyes of foot passengers, stealing through crannies of the houses, and chilling the blood of even those luxurious individuals who, seated in elegant drawing rooms before blazing fires, easily forgot that there were such bitter things as cold and poverty in that outside world against which they had barred their windows. At one house in particular, a house with gaudy glass doors and somewhat spoiled yellow silk curtains at the windows, a house that plainly said to itself, done up for the show, to all who cared to examine its exterior, there stood a closed brougham drawn by a prancing pair of fat horses. A coachman of distinguished appearance sat on the box a footman of irreproachable figure stood waiting on the pavement, his yellow-gloved hand resting elegantly on the polished silver knob of the carriage door. Both these gentlemen were resolute and inflexible of face. They looked as if they had determined on some great deed that should move the world to wild applause. But, truth to tell, they had only just finished a highly satisfactory meat tea, and before this grave silence had fallen upon them, they had been discussing the advisability of broiled steak and onions for supper. The coachman had inclined to play plain mutton chops as being easier of digestion. The footman had earnestly asseverated his disbelief of the superior succulence and sweetness of the steak and onions, and in the end he had gained his point. This weighty question being settled, they had gradually grown reflective on the past, present, and future joys of eating at someone else's expense. And in this bland and pleasing state of meditation, they were still absorbed. The horses were impatient and pawed the muddy ground with many a toss of their long manes and tails, the steam from their glossy coats mingling with the ever-thickening density of the fog. On the white stone steps of the residence, before which they waited, was an almost invisible bundle, apparently shapeless and immovable. 
Neither of the two gorgeous personages in livery observed it. It was too far back in a dim corner, too unobtrusive for the casual regard of their lofty eyes. Suddenly the glass doors before mentioned were thrown apart with a clattering noise. A warmth and radiance from the entrance hall, thus displayed, streamed into the foggy street, and at the same instant the footman, still with grave and imperturbable countenance, opened the brougham. An elderly lady, richly dressed with diamonds sparkling in her gray hair, came rustling down the steps, bringing with her faint odors of patchouli and violet powder. She was followed by a girl of doll-like prettiness, with a snub nose and petulant little mouth, who held up her satin and lace skirts with a sort of fastidious disdain, as though she scorned to set foot on earth that was not carpeted with the best velvet pile. As they approached their carriage, the inert dark bundle, crouched in the corner, started into life a woman with wild hair and wild eyes, whose pale lips quivered with suppressed weeping as her piteous voice broke into sudden clamor. Oh, lady, she cried, for the love of God, a trifle. Oh, lady, lady. But the lady, with a contemptuous sniff and a shake of her scented garments, passed her before she could continue her appeal, and she turned with a sort of faint hope to the softer face of the girl. Oh, my dear, do have pity. Just the smallest little thing, and God will bless you. You are rich and happy, and I am starving. Only a penny. For the baby, the poor little baby. And she made as though she would open her tattered shawl and reveal some treasure hidden therein, but shrunk back, repelled by the cold, merciless gaze that fell upon her from those eyes, in which youth dwelt without tenderness. You have no business on our doorstep, said the girl harshly. Go away directly, or I shall tell my servant to call a policeman. Then, as she entered the brougham, after her mother, she addressed the respectable footman angrily, giving him the benefit of a strong nasal intonation. Howard, why do you let such dirty beggars come near the carriage? What are you paid for? I should like to know. It is perfectly disgraceful to the house. Very sorry, miss, said the footman gravely. I didn't see the, the person before. Then shutting the brougham door, he turned with a dignified air to the unfortunate creature who still lingered near, and with a sweeping gesture of his gold-embroidered coat sleeve, said majestically, Do ye ear? Be off! Then having thus performed his duty, he mounted the box beside his friend, the coachman, and the equipage rattled quickly away. Its gleaming light soon lost in the smoke-laden vapors that drooped downward like funeral hangings from the invisible sky to the scarcely visible ground. Left to herself, the woman who had vainly sought charity from those in whom no charity existed looked up despairingly as one distraught and seemed as though she would have given vent to some fierce exclamation when a feeble wail came pitifully forth from the sheltering folds of her shawl. She restrained herself instantly and walked on at a rapid pace, scarcely heeding whither she went, till she reached the Catholic Church, known as the Oratory. Its finished façade loomed darkly out of the fog. There was nothing picturesque or inviting about it, yet there were people passing softly in and out, and through the swinging to and fro of the red, baize-covered doors, there came a comforting warm glimmer of light. The woman paused, hesitated, and then, having apparently made up her mind, ascended the broad steps. 
looked in, and finally entered. The place was strange to her. She knew nothing of its religious meaning, and its cold, uncompleted appearance oppressed her. There were only some half-dozen persons scattered about, like black specks. In its vast white interior, and the fog hung heavily in the vaulted dome and dark little chapels. One corner alone blazed with brilliancy and color. This was the altar of the Virgin. Toward it, the tired vagrant made her way, and on reaching it, sank on the nearest chair as though exhausted. She did not raise her eyes to the marble splendors of the shrine, one of the masterpieces of old Italian art. She had been merely attracted to the spot by the glitter of the lamps and candles, and took no thought as to the reason of their being lighted, though she was sensible of a certain comfort in the soft luster shed around her. She seemed still young, her face rendered haggard by long and bitter privation, showed traces of past beauty, and her eyes, full of feverish trouble, were large, dark, and still lustrous. Her mouth alone, that sensitive betrayer of the life's good and bad actions, revealed that all had not been well with her. Its lines were hard and vicious, and the resentful curve of the upper lip spoke of foolish pride, not amixed with reckless sensuality. She sat for a moment or two, motionless, then, with exceeding care and tenderness, she began to unfold her thin, torn shawl by gentle degrees, looking down with anxious solicitude at the object concealed within. Only a baby, and withal a baby so tiny and white and frail that it seemed as though it must melt like a snowflake beneath the lightest touch. As its wrappings were loosened, it opened a pair of large, solemn blue eyes and gazed at the woman's face with a strange, pitiful wistfulness. It lay quiet, without a moan, a pinched, pale miniature suffering humanity, an infant with sorrow's mark painfully impressed upon its drawn, small features. Presently, it stretched forth a puny hand and feebly caressed its protectress, and this, too, with the faintest glimmer of a smile. The woman responded to its affection with a sort of rapture. She caught it fondly to her breast and covered it with kisses, rocking it to and fro with broken words of endearment. My little darling, she whispered softly. My little pet, yes, yes, I know. So tired, so cold and hungry. Never mind, baby, never mind. We will rest here a little, then we will sing a song presently and get some money to take us home. Sleep a while longer, dearie. There, there. Now we are warm and cozy again. So saying, she rearranged his shawl in closer and tighter folds so as to protect the child more thoroughly. While she was engaged in this operation, a lady in deep mourning passed close by, and advancing to the very steps of the altar, knelt down, hiding her face with her clasped hands. The tired wayfarer's attention was attracted by this, she gazed with a sort of dull wonder at the kneeling figure robed in rich rustling silk and crepe, and gradually her eyes wandered upward, upward, till they rested on the gravely sweet and serenely smiling marble image of the virgin and child. She looked, and looking again, surprised, incredulous, then suddenly rose to her feet and made her way to the altar railing. There she paused, staring vaguely at a basket of flowers, white and odorous, that had been left there by some reverent worshipper. She glanced doubtfully at the swinging silver lamps, the twinkling candles. She was conscious, too, of a subtle, strange fragrance in the air, 
as though a basket full of spring violets and daffodils had just been carried by. Then, as her wondering gaze came back to the solitary woman in black, who still knelt motionless near her, a sort of choking sensation came into her throat and a stinging moisture struggling in her eyes. She strove to turn this hysterical sensation to a low laugh of disdain. Lord, Lord, she muttered beneath her breath. What sort of place is this? Were they prey to a woman and a baby? At that moment, the woman in black rose. She was young with a proud, fair, but weary face. Her eyes lighted on her soiled and poverty-stricken sister, and she paused with a pitying look. The street wanderer made use of the opportunity thus offered, and in an urgent whisper implored charity. The lady drew out a purse, then hesitated, looking wistfully at the bundle and the shawl. You have a child there? She asked in gentle accents. May I see it? Yes, lady. And the wrapper was turned down sufficiently to disclose the tiny white face, now more infinitely touching than ever in the pathos of sleep. I lost my little one a week ago, said the lady, simply as she looked at it. He was all I had. Her voice trembled. She opened her purse and placed a half-crown in the hand of her astonished supplicant. You are happier than I am. Perhaps you will pray for me. I am very lonely. Then dropping her long crepe veil so that it completely hid her features, she bent her head and moved softly away. The woman watched her till her graceful figure was completely lost in the gloom of the great church and then turned again vaguely to the altar. Pray for her, she thought. I? As if I could pray. And she smiled bitterly. Again, she looked at the statue in the shrine, and it had no meaning at all for her. She had never heard of Christianity, save through the medium of a tract, whose consoling title had been, Stop! You are going to hell! Religion of every sort was mocked at by those among whom her lot was cast. The name of Christ was only used as a convenience to swear by, and therefore this mysterious, smiling, gently inviting marble figure was incomprehensible to her mind. As if I could pray, she repeated, with a sort of derision. Then she looked at the broad silver coin in her hand and the sleeping baby in her arms. With a sudden impulse, she dropped to her knees. Whoever you are, she muttered, addressing the statue above her. It seems you've got a child of your own. Perhaps you'll help me to take care of this one. It isn't mine. I wish it was. Anyway, I, I love it more than its own mother does. I dare say you won't listen to the likes of me, but if there was God anywhere about, I'd ask him to bless that good soul that's lost her baby. I bless her with all my heart, but my blessing ain't much good. Ah. And she surveyed anew the virgin's serene white countenance. You just look as if you understood me, but I don't believe you do. Never mind, I've, I've said all I wanted to say this time. Her strange petition, or rather discourse, concluded. She rose and walked away. The great doors of the church swung heavily behind her as she stepped out and stood once more in the muddy street. It was raining steadily, a fine, cold, penetrating rain, but the coin she held was a talisman against outer discomforts, and she continued to walk on till she came to a clean-looking dairy 
where for a couple of pence she was able to replenish the infant's long-ago emptied feeding bottle. But she purchased nothing for herself. She had starved all day and was now too faint to eat. Soon she entered an omnibus and was driven to Charing Cross. And lighting at the great station, brilliant with its electric light, she paced up and down outside it, accosting several of the passerbys and imploring their pity. One man gave her a penny, another, young and handsome, with a flushed, intemperate face and a look of his fast-fading boyhood still about him, put his hand in his pocket and drew out all the loose coppers it contained, amounting to three pennies and an odd farthing, and dropping them into her outstretched palm, said, half gaily, half boldly, you ought to do better than that with those big eyes of yours. She drew back and shuddered. He broke into a coarse laugh and went his way. Standing where he had left her, she seemed for a time lost in wretched reflections. The fretful, wailing cry of the child she carried roused her, and hushing it softly, she murmured. Yes, yes, darling. It is too wet and cold for you. We had better go. And acting suddenly on her resolve, she hailed another omnibus, this time bound for Tottenham Court Road, and was, after some dreary jolting, set down at her final destination, a dirty alley in the worst part of seven days. Entering it, she was hailed with a shout of derisive laughter from some rough-looking men and women who were standing grouped round a low gin shop at the corner. Here's Liz, cried one. Here's Liz and the bloomin' kid. Now, old gal, fork out. How much have you got, Liz? Treat us to a drop all round. Liz, waked past the, Liz walked past them steadily. The conspicuous curve of her upper lip came into full play, and her eyes flashed disdainfully. But she said nothing. Her silence exasperated a tangle-haired, cat-faced girl of seventeen years, who, more than half-drunk, sat on the ground clasping her knees with both arms and rocking herself lazily to and fro. Mother Mox! cried she. Mother Mox, you want it? Here's Liz, come back with your baby. As if her words had been a powerful incantation to summon forth an evil spirit, a door in one of the miserable houses was thrown open, and a stout woman, nearly naked to the waist, with a swollen, blotched, and most hideous countenance, rushed out furiously, and darting at Liz, shook her violently by the arm. Where's my shillin'? She yelled. Where's my gin? Out with it. Out with my shillin' and fourpence. None of your sneaking ways with me. A bargain's a bargain all over the world. You're making a fortin' with my babby. You know you are. Pays you a good deal better than your old trade. Don't say it don't. You know it do. You'll not find such a sickly kid anywheres. And it's the sickly kids what pays and moves the arts of the kind ladies and good gentlemen. This was an imitative whine that excited the laughter and applause of her hearers. You got it cheap, I can tell you. And if you don't pay regular, there's others that'll take the chance and thankful too. She stopped for lack of breath and Liz spoke quietly. It's all right, Mother Ma. She said with an attempt at a smile. Here's your shilling. Here's the four pennies for the gin. I don't owe you anything for the child now. She stopped and hesitated, looking down tenderly at the frail creature in her arms, then added almost pleadingly. It's asleep now. May I take it with me tonight? Mother Mox, 
who had been testing the coins Liz had given her by biting them ferociously with her large yellow teeth, broke into a loud laugh. Take it with ya! I like that! What impertinence! Take it with ya! Then, with her huge red arms akimbo, she added with a grin. Tell you what, if you likes to pay me off a crown, you can have it to cuddle and welcome. Another shout of approving merriment burst from the drink-sodden spectators of the little scene, and the girl crouched on the ground, removed her encircling hands from her knees to clap them loudly as she exclaimed, Well done, Mother Marks. One doesn't let out kids at night for nothing. Thought to be more expensive than daytime. The face of Liz had grown white and rigid. You know I can't give you that money, she said slowly. I have not tasted bit or drop all day. I must live, though it doesn't seem worthwhile. The child... And her voice softened, softened involuntarily. Is fast asleep. It's a pity to wake it, that's all. It will cry and fret all night, and I will make it warm and comfortable if you let me. She raised her eyes hopefully and anxiously. Will you? Mother Mox was evidently a lady of an excitable disposition. The simple request seemed to drive her nearly frantic. She raised her voice to an absolute scream, thrusting her dirty hands through her still dirtier hair as the proper accompanying gesture to her vituperative oratory. Will I? Will I? She screeched. Will I let out my own babby for the night for nothing? Will I? No, I won't. I'll see you blowed into the middle of next week first. Lord a mercy, how I am my we getting to be sure. The baby will be quiet for you, Miss Liz, will it indeed? And it will cry and fret for its own mother, will it indeed? And at every sentence, she approached Liz more nearly, increasing in fury as she advanced. You low hussy. Do you think I'd let you have my baby for an hour unless you paid for it? As it is, you pays far too little. I'm an honest woman as works for my living, and what drinks reasonable? Better than you by a long sight with your stuck-up airs. A pretty drab you are. Give me the babby. You ain't no business to keep it a minute longer. And she made a grab at Liz's sheltering shawl. Oh, don't hurt it, please. Pleaded Liz, trembling. Such a little thing, don't hurt it. Mother Mox stared so wildly that her bloodshot eyes seemed protruding from her head. Hurt it? Ain't I a right to do what I likes with my own babby? Hurt it? Well, I never. Look it. And she turned round on the assembled neighbors. Hey, she a regular one. She don't care for the law, not she. She's keeping back a child from its own mother. And with that, she made a fierce attack on the shawl and succeeded in dragging the infant from Liz's reluctant arms. Wakened thus roughly from its slumbers, the poor mite set up a feeble wailing. Its mother, enraged at the sound, shook it violently till it gasped for breath. Drat little beast! She cried. Why don't it choke and have done with it? And, without heeding the terrified remonstrances of Liz, she flung the child roughly, as though it were a ball, through the open door of her lodgings, where it fell on a heap of dirty clothes and lay motionless. Its wailing had ceased. Oh, baby, baby! exclaimed Liz in accents of poignant distress. Oh, you have killed it, I'm sure! 
Oh, you cruel, cruel, oh, baby, baby. And she broke into a tempestuous passion of sobs and tears. The bystanders looked on in unmoved silence. Mother Mox gathered her torn garments round her with a gesture of defiance and sniffed the air as though she said, anyone who wants to meddle with me will get the worst of it. There was a brief pause. Suddenly, a man staggered out of the gin shop smearing the back of his hands across his mouth as he came. A massively built, ill-favored brute, with a shock of uncombed red hair and small, ferret-like eyes. He stared stupidly at the weeping Liz, then at Mother Mox. Finally, from one to the other of the loafers, he stood by. "'What's the row?' he demanded quickly. "'What's up? Have it out fair. Joe Mox will stand by and see fair game. Fire away, my hearties. Fire, fire away. And with a chuckling, idiot laugh, he dived into the pocket of his torn corduroy trousers and produced a pipe. Filling this leisurely from a greasy pouch with such unsteady fingers that the tobacco dropped all over him, he lighted it, repeating with increased thickness of utterance, What's the row? Evid out fair. It's about your baby, Joe, cried the girl before mentioned, jumping up from her seat on the ground with such force that her hair came tumbling all about her in a dark, dank mist through which her thin, eager face spitefully appeared. Liz has gone crazy. She wants your baby to cuddle. And she screamed with sudden laughter. <laughs> Fancy wants the baby to cuddle. The stupefied Joe blinked drowsily and sucked the stem of his pipe with apparent relish. Then, as if he had been engaged in a deep meditation on the subject, he removed his smoky consoler from his mouth and said, Why not? Wants the baby to cuddle. All right, let her have it. Why not? At these words, Liz looked up hopefully through her eyes, but Mother Mox started forward in raving indignation. You great drunken fool! She yelled to her besotted spouse. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? What? Let our babby for a whole night for nothing? It's lucky I have my wits about me, and I say Liz shan't have it. There now. The man looked at her, and a dogged resolution darkened his repulsive countenance. He raised his big fist, clinched it, and hit straight out, giving his infuriated wife a black eye in much less than a minute. And I say I shall have it. Where are ye now? In answer to the query, Mother Mox might have said that she was all there, for she returned her husband's blow with interest and force, and in a couple of seconds, the happy pair were engaged in a stand-up fight to the intense admiration and excitement of all the inhabitants of the little alley. Everyone in the place thronged to watch the combatants and to hear the blasphemous oaths, oaths and curses with which the battle was accompanied. In the midst of the affray, a wizened, bent old man who had been sitting at his door sorting rags in a basket and apparently taking no heed of the clamor around him made a sign to Liz. Take the kid now, he whispered. Nobody'll notice. I'll see they don't cry after ye. Liz thanked him mutely by a look and rushing to the house where the child still lay, seemingly inanimate, on the floor among the soiled clothes, she caught it up eagerly and hurried away to her own poor garret in a tumble-down tenement at the farthest end of the alley. The infant had been stunned by the fall, but under her tender care and rocked in the warmth of her caressing arms, it soon recovered. 
though when its blue eyes opened, they were full of bewildered pain, such as may be seen in the eyes of a shot bird. My pet, my poor little darling, she murmured over and over, kissing its wee white face and soft hands. I wish I was your mother. Lord knows I do. As it is, you're all I've got to care for. And you do love me, baby, don't you? Just a little, little bit? And as she renewed her fondling embraces, this tiny, sad visage creature uttered a low, crooning sound of baby satisfaction in response to her endearments, a sound more sweet to her ears than the most exquisite music, and which brought a smile to her mouth and a pathos to her dark eyes, rendering her face for a moment beautiful. Holding the child closely to her breast, she looked cautiously out of her narrow window and perceived that the connubial fight was over. From the shouts of laughter and plaudits that reached her ears, Joe Mox had evidently won the day. His wife had disappeared from the field. She saw the little crowd dispersing. Most of those who composed it entered the gin shop, and very soon the alley was comparatively quiet and deserted. By and by, she heard her name called in a low voice, Liz, Liz. She looked down and saw the old man who had promised her his protection in case Mother Mox should persecute her. Is that you, Jim? Come upstairs. It's better than talking out there. He obeyed and stood before her in the wretched room, looking curiously both at her and the baby. A wiry, wolfish-faced being was Jim Duds, as he was familiarly called, though his own name was the aristocratic and singularly inappropriate one of James Douglas. He was more like an animal than a human creature with his straggling gray hair, bushy beard, and sharp teeth protruding like fangs from beneath his upper lip. His profession was that of an area thief, and he considered it a sufficiently respectable calling. Mother Mox has got it this time, he said with a grin which was more like a snarl. Joe's blood was up, and he pounded a nigh into a jelly. She'll never ye quit now, so long as ye pay the high regular. You'll have Joe on your side. If so be as there's a bad day, you better not come home at all. I know, she said. But she's always had the money for the child, and surely it wasn't much to ask her to let me keep it warm on such a cold night as this. Jim Duds looked meditative. What makes you care for the baby so much? He asked. Taint yawn. She sighed. No, she said. Sadly. That's true, but it seems something to hold on to, like, see what my life has been? She stopped and a wave of color flushed her pallid features. From a little girl, nothing but the streets, the long, cruel streets, and I just a bit of dirt on a pavement, no more, flung here, flung there, and at last swept into the gutter, all dark, all useless. She laughed a little. Fancy, Jim. I've never seen the country. Nor I, said Jim, biting a piece of straw reflectively. It must be powerful fine, with naught but green trees and posies a-blowin' and a-growin' everywheres. There ain't many kitchen areas there, though, I'm told. Liz went on, scarcely heeding him. The baby seems to me like what the country must be. All harmless and sweet and quiet. When I hold it so, my heart gets peaceful somehow. I don't know why. Again, Jim looked speculative. 
He waved his bitten straw expressively. You've had experience, Liz. Ain't ye met no man like what ye could care for? Liz trembled and her eyes grew wild. Men? She cried with bitterest scorn. No men have come my way, only brutes. Jim stared but was silent. He had no fit answer ready. Presently, Liz spoke again more softly. Jim, do you know I went into a great church today? Worse luck, said Jim, sententiously. Church ain't no use nohow as far as I can see. There was a figure, Jim. Went Liz earnestly. Of a woman holding up a baby. And people knelt down before it. What do you suppose it was? Can't say, replied the puzzle Jim. Are you sure twas a church? Most like twas a museum. No, no. Said Liz. It was a church for certain. There were folks praying in it. Ah, well, growled Jim gruffly. Much good it may do em. I'm not of the praying sort. A woman and a baby, did you say? Don't you get such cranky notions into your head, Liz. Women and babies are common enough, too common, by a long chalk. And as for praying to em, Jim's utter contempt and incredulity was too great for further expression, and he turned away, wishing her a curt good night. Good night, said Liz softly, and long after he had left, she still sat silent, thinking, thinking with the baby asleep in her arms, listening to the rain as it dripped, dripped heavily like clods falling on a coffin lid. She was not a good woman, far from it. Her very motive in hiring the infant at so much a day was entirely inexcusable. It was simply to gain money upon false pretense, by exciting more pity than would otherwise have been bestowed on her had she begged for herself alone, without a child in her arms. At first she had carried the baby about to serve as a mere trick of her trade, but the warm feel of its little helpless body against her bosom day after day had softened her heart toward its innocence and pitiful weakness and at last she had grown to love it with a strange, intense passion, so much that she would willingly have sacrificed her life for its sake. She knew that its own parents cared nothing for it, except for the money it brought them through her hands, and often wild plans would form in her poor, tired brain, plans of running away with it altogether from the roaring, devouring city to some sweet, humble country village, there to obtain work and devote herself to making this little child happy. <sighs> Poor Liz. Poor, bewildered, heartbroken Liz. Ignorant, London heathen as she was, there was one fragrant flower blossoming in the desert of her soiled and wasted existence. The flower of a pure and guileless love for one of those little ones, of whom it hath been said by an all-pitying divinity unknown to her, suffer them to come unto me, and forbid them not, for if such is the kingdom of heaven. The dreary winter days crept on apace, and as they drew near Christmas, dwellers in the streets leading off the strand grew accustomed of nights to hear the plaintive voice of a woman, singing in a peculiarly thrilling and pathetic manner some of the old songs and ballads familiar and dear to the heart of every Englishman. The Banks of Allen Water, The Bailiff's Daughter, Sally in Our Alley, the last rose of summer. All these well-loved ditties she sang, one after the other, and though her notes were neither fresh nor powerful, 
They were true and often tender, more particularly in the hackneyed but still captivating melody of home sweet home. Windows were opened and pennies freely showered on the street vocalist, who was accompanied in all her wonderings by a fragile infant, which she seemed to carry with a special care and tenderness. Sometimes too, in the bleak afternoons, she would be seen winding her way through mud and mire, setting her weary face against the bitter east wind and patiently singing on. And motherly women coming from the gay shops and stores where they had been purchasing Christmas toys for their own children would often stop to look at the baby's pinched white features with pity and would say while giving their spare pennies, poor little thing, is it not very ill? And Liz, her heart freezing with sudden terror, would exclaim hurriedly, Oh, no, no, it is always pale. It is just a little bit weak, that's all. And the kindly questioners, touched by the large despair of her dark eyes, would pass on and say no more. And Christmas came, the birthday of the child Christ, a feast, the sacred meaning of which was unbeknownst to Liz. She only recognized it as a sort of large and somewhat dull bank holiday, when all London devoted itself to church-going and the eating of roast beef and plum pudding. The whole thing was incomprehensible to her mind, but even her sad countenance was brighter than usual on Christmas Eve, and she felt almost gay, for had she not, by means of a little extra starvation on her part, been able to buy a wondrous gold and crimson worsted bird suspended from an elastic string, a bird which bobbed up and down to command in the most lively and artistic manner. And had not her hired baby actually laughed at the clumsy toy, laughed an elfish and weird laugh, the first it had ever indulged in. And Liz had laughed too, for pure gladness in the child's mirth. And the worsted bird became a sort of uncouth charm to make them both merry. But after Christmas had come and gone, and the mel melancholy days, the last beating of the falling pulse of the old year throbbed slowly and heavily away. The baby took upon it its wan visage, a strange expression, the solemn expression of worn out and suffering age. Its blue eyes grew more solemnly speculative and dreamy, and after a while it seemed to lose all taste for the petty things of this world and the low desires of mere humanity. It lay very quiet in Liz's arms. It never cried, and was no longer fretful, and it seemed to listen with a sort of mild approval to the tones of her voice as they rang out in the dreary streets, through which, by day and night, she patiently wandered by and by, the worsted bird too fell out of the favor. It jumped and glittered in vain. The baby surveyed it with an unmoved air of superior wisdom, just as if it had suddenly found out what real birds were like and was not to be deceived into accepting so poor an imitation of nature. Liz grew uneasy, but she had no one in whom to confide her fears. She had been very regular in her payments to Mother Mox, and that irate lady, kept in order by her bulldog of a husband, had been, late very, had been of late very contented to let her have the child without further interference. Liz knew well enough that no one in the miserable alley where she dwelt would care whether the baby were ill or not. They would tell her, the more sickly, the better for your trade. Besides, she was jealous. She could not endure the idea of anyone tending it and touching it but herself. Children were often ailing, 
she thought, and it left to themselves without doctor's stuff, they recovered sometimes more quickly than they had sickened. Thus, soothing her inward tremors at best she might, she took more care than ever of her frail charge, stinting herself that she might nourish it, though the baby seemed to care less and less for mundane necessities, and only submitted to be fed, as it were, under patient and silent protest. And so the sands and time's hour glass ran slowly but surely away, and it was New Year's Eve. Liz had wandered about all day, singing her little repertoire of ballads in the teeth of a cruel, snow-laden wind, so cruel that people otherwise charitable, dispo charitably disposed had shut close their doors and windows and had not even heard her voice. Thus, the last span of the old year had proved most unprofitable and dreary. She had gained no more than sixpence. How could she return with only the humble amount to face Mother Mox and her vituperative fury? Her throat ached. She was very tired, and as the night darkened from pale to deep and starless shadows, she strolled mechanically from the strand to the embankment, and after walking some little distance, she sat down in a corner close to Cleopatra's needle that mocking obelisk that had looked upon the decay of empires, itself impassive, and that still appears to say, Pass on, ye puny generations. I, a mere carven block of stone, shall outlive you all. For the first time in all her experience, the child in her arms seemed a heavy burden. She put aside her shawl and surveyed it tenderly. It was fast asleep, a small, peaceful smile on its thin, quiet face. Thoroughly worn out herself, she leaned her head against the damp stone wall behind her, and clasping the infant tightly to her breast, she also slept. The heavy, dreamless sleep of utter fatigue and physical exhaustion. The solemn night moved on, a night of black vapors. The pageant of the old year's deathbed was unbrightened by so much as a single star. None of the hurrying passers-by perceived the weary woman where she slept in that obscure corner. And for a long while she rested there undisturbed. Suddenly a vivid glare of light dazzled her eyes. She started to her feet half asleep, but still instinctively retaining the infant in her close embrace, a dark form buttoned to the throat and holding a brilliant bullseye lantern stood before her. Come now, said the personage. This won't do, move on. Liz smiled faintly and apologetically. All right, she answered, striving to speak cheerfully and raising her eyes to the policeman's good-natured countenance. I didn't mean to fall asleep here. I don't know how I came to do it. I must go home, of course. Of course, said the policeman, somewhat mollified by her evident humility and touched in spite of himself by the pathos of her eyes. Then turning his lamp more fully upon her, he continued, Is that baby you've got there? Yes, said Liz, half proudly, half tenderly. Poor little dear, it's been ailing sadly, but I think it's better now than it was. And encouraged by his friendly tone, she opened the folds of her shawl to show him her one treasure. The bullseye came into still closer requisition as the kindly guardian of the peace peered inquiringly at the tiny bundle. He had scarcely looked when he started back with an exclamation, God bless my soul, he cried. It's dead. 
dead! shrieked Liz. Oh no, no, not dead! Don't say so, oh, don't, don't say so, oh, you can't mean it! Oh, for God's love, say you didn't mean it! It can't be dead, not really dead! No, no, indeed, oh, baby, baby, you are not dead, my pet angel, not dead, oh no! And breathless, frantic with fear, she felt the little thing's hands and feet and face, kissed it wildly and called it by a thousand endearing names, in vain, in vain. Its tiny body was already stiff and rigid. It had been a corpse more than two hours. The policeman coughed and brushed his thick gauntlet glove across his eyes. He was an emissary of the law, but he had a heart. He thought of his bright-eyed wife at home and of the soft-cheeked, cuddling little creature that clung to her bosom and crowed with rapture whenever he came near. Look here, he said very gently, laying one hand on the woman's shoulder as she crouched shivering against the wall and staring piteously at the motionless waxen form in her arms. It's no use fretting about it. He paused. There was an uncomfortable lump in his throat, and he had to cough again to get it down. The poor little creature's gone. There's no help for it. The next world's a better place than this, you know. There, there. Don't take on so about it. This as Liz shuddered and sighed, a sigh of such complete despair that it went straight to his honest soul, and showed him how futile were his efforts at consolation. But he had his duty to attend to, and he went on in firmer tones. Now, like a good woman, you just move off from here and go home. If I leave you here by yourself a bit, will you promise me to go straight home? I mustn't find you here when I come back on this beat. Do you understand? Liz nodded. That's right, he resumed cheerfully. I'll give you just ten minutes. You just go straight home. And with a good night, uttered in accents meant to be comforting, he turned away and paced on, his measured tread echoing on the silence at first loudly, then fainter and fainter, till it altogether died away as his bulky figure disappeared in the distance. Left to herself, Liz rose from her crouching posture, rocked the dead child in her arms. She smiled. Go straight home, she murmured half aloud. Home, sweet home. Yes, baby, yes, my darling. We will go home together. And creeping cautiously along in the shadows, she reached a flight of the broad stone steps leading down to the river. She descended them, one by one. The black water lapped against them heavily, heavily. The tide was full up. She paused. A sonorous, deep-toned, iron voice rang through the air with reverberating solemn melody. It was the great bell of St. Paul's tolling midnight. The old year was dead. Straight home, she repeated with a beautiful, expectant look in her wild, weary eyes. My little darling, yes, we are both tired. We will go home. Home, sweet home, we will go. Kissing the cold face of the baby corpse she held, she threw herself forward. There followed a sullen, deep splash, a slight struggle, and all was over. The water lapped against the steps heavily, heavily as before, the policeman passed once more and saw to his satisfaction that the coast was clear. 
Through the dark veil of the sky, one star looked out and twinkled for a brief instant, then disappeared again. A clash and clamor of bells startled the brooding night. Here and there a window was opened and figures appeared in balconies to listen. They were ringing in the new year, the festival of hope, the birthday of the world. But what were new years to her who, with white upturned face and arms that embraced an infant in the tenacious grip of death, went drifting, drifting solemnly down the dark river, unseen, unpitied by all those who awoke to new hopes and aspirations on that first morning of another life probation. Liz had gone, gone to make her peace with God, perhaps through the aid of her hired baby, the little sinless soul she had so fondly cherished, gone to that sweetest home we dream of and pray for, where the lost and bewildered wanderers of this earth shall find true welcome and rest from grief and exile. Gone to that fair, far glory world where reigns the divine master, whose words still ring above the tumult of ages. See that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that their angels do always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. The end. Good job. Oh, good job to you. Listeners, this one was probably one of the hardest pieces to do. And I am sorry if, if people are English out there and listen to it and um, have injuries now from listening to it. Uh, yes, we do extend our apologies to those who might be offended by our English <laughs> Someday we will have English actors on the show, right, Megan? Yes, yes. Uh, once, um, you know, once COVID, we can actually be in the room with other people and we can beef up our technology, then we will fortunately have, um, you know, real English actors and poor Marie Corelli will not have to suffer through us. Megan, I for one was super entertained by your, your horrible woman voice. Oh, thank you. What a nasty woman. What a nasty woman. Yeah. And a nasty situation for her, for sure. Megan, what did you enjoy about the piece? Like, why were you down to do this one? I, the things that I loved about this piece were just how descriptive uh, she is and how she really paints all the scenes so well. Like, I feel like I'm on that street. I feel like I'm in that alley. Like, even the transitions between Liz going from the what appears to be like a more upper middle class neighborhood to going to her slum uh, is, is so specific. And I just feel like I can smell it and I can see it and I can touch it and I can hear these voices and I can see these people. Um, I, I feel like she just, she just captures the environment so well. I, I totally agree. I think she would make a brilliant screenwriter if she were alive today. She does this thing readers that we learned in uh in a screenwriting class at Carnegie Mellon where you paint the picture so you're panning the camera. So when we were in the church, she, I mean, this was before like, you know, c- cinematography, she painted that image of like uh, th- that poor girl, like looking up at the Virgin Mary. It's just wonderfully written, really well written. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And her, and also her characters are very specific. Even the, the, you know the, the the very small characters like the little girl on the on the 
the doorstep at the beginning, who's like nasty to Liz and the footman at the beginning. And even though those are very small characters, I, I know that person and she gives them such depth and such complexity with so little words. Um, you know, I, I feel like so, so conflicted with about mother Mox because she's so awful, but at the same time, like she's in this terribly abusive relationship with her husband and, she lives in squalor and I'm sure she has, you know, tons and tons of kids on top of the hired baby. And, um, you know, I just can't imagine what her life is like. And, and you just get so much from, from every word that she uses to, to describe these characters and express these characters. I think you really get a, a very well-rounded idea of that. And what I think the listeners might find really interesting, because this is kind of a lot like Charles Dickens. And when I think of Charles Dickens, I think of sentimentality, right? Um, mm -hmm. so Marie was actually accused of, uh, sentimentality. And when I mentioned this to Megan, she was like, well, that was because she was a woman. Yeah. It makes you think that yeah. when, when her contemporaries like Charles Dickens get away with being really sentimental. And when you have a, a, a person like Marie, a woman like Marie, it's, it's like, well, it can't be just the sentimentality, you know, it has, it has to be something else. And, and this being the late 1800s going into the 1900s, I'm, I'm sure that, that sexism had a lot to do with it. And, and I also like in my mind, like in my conspiratorial mind, I'm also thinking like, oh, they were just jealous of her popularity. Oh, they were totally jealous. I don't think. even think that's a conspiracy <laughs> thing, Megan. They were completely <laughs> jealous. It's like one of those things where, like, you know how people say that a woman is angry and she's like emotional um but but why shouldn't she be like i mean like she like to say she's sentimental of course she's sentimental she's painting a picture where she right. wants you to have feelings right 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 exactly exactly and then a lot of times like women even myself i've experienced this where i've been emotional about something or passionate about something and people have kind of looked at me like oh you're just being sentimental or you're being too precious uh, when I felt like I, you know, I was just expressing my, my emotion and my excitement for something. And, uh, you know, societal society wants women to temper their emotions. Mm. Um, as I feel like people, men don't know how to handle women's emotions. Sometimes. But listen, <laughs> if you were to out. temper your emotions, then you would get in trouble for being a robot. So yes. Yeah. There's no, there's really no, there's win, no win. Um, when it when it comes to that yeah if you if you're too emotional then if you show emotions you're too emotional and if you temper yourself you're unfailing and you're a robot and you need to show more emotions so there's really there really is is no win um yeah and one, one of the things that i also like about this story is the the religious connotations mm. like i think when i when i read it when i first read it i was really surprised by the her going into the church mm. and and visiting with the virgin mary and all of that i loved all that description and everything at the time um but in doing my my historical research on this piece i i found at the time in the victorian era in in england at the time you know there was this there was the shift in people's um ideas of religion and social morals and uh, there was there was a romanticism and a mysticism that was coming in and there was a change in the middle class and people were becoming more educated and they were they were having more access to religion and kind of, um, you know, coming to terms with their own ideas of religion as opposed to what they had been had been indoctrinated with. And 
Um, you mentioned that she was kind of ahead of her time, right? Like she she combined different religions, like spirituality with. Do you want to go about that? Because I found that really fascinating. Uh, yeah, her her first her first novel, um, a world of two romances. Um, I think I'm getting that that name wrong. Actually, a romance of two worlds is what it's called. Is about uh, you know this woman who falls in love with this Italian, and then she's kind of like whisked away to this spiritual world, and it's all about the the um, struggle between reincarnation and evolution and creationism and she was really exploring mm. a lot of these very deep um, kind of derisive ideas at the time, you know, and, and there was a lot of upheaval at that time in, in England. You know, you had you had so much going on socially and also um, in in the religion and people learning, you know, being more educated and uh, learning more about science and and kind of going out and being more individual. And and she was like from the late 1800s for the people who are curious. So, I mean, her stuff mm. still holds up, Megan. Um, so for the listeners, the way we found this was we were like, we should have a dead person on the show. So <laughs> I looked through Project Gutenberg that has a lot of uh, the public domain pieces. And Okay, I'm not going to slam anyone. I'm not going to call out any names, but I got really bored by some of the pieces. And so I was scrolling through and some of these people, you would know their names. So I'm not going to name drop the the people that I passed by because I was so bored. Um, And then I saw a female name and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's read a piece by a a woman. Like, I'd rather just see something different because there were so many male pieces. I didn't have any expectation because I've never heard of Marie Corelli. And I was sucked in immediately. The first page, I was waiting for her to suck it up. You know, I thought she was going to do something where Mary comes down from the clouds and saves, you know, the baby at the end or something. And she didn't. She she wrote this thing so well. I'm I'm really interested to see what else she writes, Megan. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I definitely want to read read more of her work. Um, and and one of the things that we've talked about is how um, like. I can understand that there are parts in the, of this story that may feel sentimental, but I feel like there's just so much darkness. She threw a baby across the room. Like, I mean, there's some, there's some stuff that's really like hard stuff yeah. that's going down. And, and, and I feel like as we discussed before, like even at the end when Liz throws herself into the river and kills herself, like she's, she doesn't say Corelli doesn't say that, Oh, she's going to her peaceful home in heaven. You know, she's, she's going to be judged by God. And, and it is still like, it makes me wonder like what happened to poor Liz, you know, like what was her afterlife like? And yeah, she's so um, good. Cause this was a spiritual woman. She's really good with painting um, the church in a way that is not good or bad. Like she uses a lot of dramatic mm-hmm. irony. And for, for those that uh, don't know what irony is, it's where, um, oh, I hope I described this right. Megan, call me out if I don't. I'm nervous. Get it right, Jeremy. Oh boy. Get it right. But like irony is where, <laughs> where uh, you think one thing's going to happen, like it has a certain meaning, but like when it's painted, it's in a different light. Like, Am I right on that, Megan? Yeah, I'll give you that. You'll give, <laughs> For for those listeners, Megan's the smart one, and I'm. Uh, oh, that's not true. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, 
like one of my favorite scenes is the one that you mentioned at the end. Like it really hit me hard. I actually teared up when I when I read that last part. I was like, man, Marie hit me. And then the other part that I really love is when she's just, you know, praying to the Virgin Mary. And here is this woman with her baby in her arms. I know it's not her own, but listeners, I want to know what you think. Like, please tell us. Like, seriously, like right now, if you're listening, I don't know who's listening right now, but I want to know what you thought of this, because this is an old piece. Like, this has dust and cobwebs all over it. Yeah, we would we would really love to know um, what you think about this. And and um, we appreciate you listening in while Jeremy and I talk about Marie. Unfortunately, you know, without seance and some smelling salts, we can't have Marie with us today to interview her and talk to her directly about about her story. Um, but I wish she could be here because she sounds like such a fascinating woman from the research that I've done and was really um, interested in exploring these these bigger kind of off color ideas uh, that were different than her contemporaries. And I, and I definitely appreciate that. Megan really tried to bring her on the show for you all today, but I stopped her at the Ouija board. We're just not getting into it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I stopped myself at the Ouija board. I, I don't play. With no, 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 no play, no play. <laughs> so is there anything that we haven't covered that you found interesting, Megan? Oh, man, we could go on and on and on about Marie Corelli. Um, oh, well, I did. I wanted to give you guys just a little bit of background on her. Um, you know, her original name was Mary McKay, and she was allegedly the illegitimate daughter of the poet Charles McKay and um, Charles McKay's servant. And she uh, was shipped off to, to convent school and went to, to school in a convent, which I I think, you know, probably influenced her, her interest in religion. Um, and she, throughout her career, always kind of tried to rewrite her beginnings. You know, like nobody could ever prove that she was this illegitimate child or, you know, they couldn't prove really what her story was. And she was always kind of very mysterious with it. And um, she eventually moved to uh, Stratford-on-Avon um, in England and was a big, advocate of preserving uh, Shakespeare's legacy in that town and and preserving Shakespeare's library. And she lived there for 40 years with her companion and left all of her um, her woman companion and left all of her fortune to her when she when she died. And um, yeah, what a fascinating lady. Very, very fascinating. And it's messed up, I think, that she disappeared like you know, that's just messed up yeah. that we still have like the Jungle Book and the Time Machine. But where is she? And all it, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, and and one last fun fact about Marie Corelli is that um, she was very, very popular at the, at her, you know, during her career, and she was selling all of these books. And then World War II happened, and they issued a ra a food ration. Um, in, in Britain because all of the extra food needed to go to the soldiers and needed to help the fight the cause. And um, somehow it was found out that Marie Corelli was actually a food hoarder. And once it came out that she was hoarding all this food, it really uh, subverted her reputation and people kind of turned against her and turned against her work because they found out that she was, she was going against, you know, the, the country basically is how they thought it, thought of it. Um, so I think that, that definitely, Probably hurt her reputation and probably um, didn't help her move forward you know, throughout the throughout the years. I mean, you can imagine like 
if they like I mean Tom totally Hanks. relevant coronavirus yeah hoarding toilet paper yes, yes exactly yeah or, or hand sanitizer like if we found out one of our beloved writers or, or actors or creatives was was doing something like that we would be very upset and would, would boycott their work I'm sure so um it's it's interesting to think like we we feel like we're very civilized and and we've moved forward a lot in the last hundred years but people still act very much like they did 100 or 150 years ago people, in terms of celebrity totally and, people are people yeah. and one of the things that megan and i have struggled with is that we look for authors and then we find out that they're racist or or uh, misogynists or homophobes you know so it's really hard to find someone who hasn't had issues yeah <laughs> yes and not that we want to censor or we want we only yeah. want to read read stories by people who are saints or who who only have viewpoints that we agree with but we also don't want to um you know, shine a, a positive light on some of these stories that might perpetuate ideas that we don't believe in. So it's a constant, I think as a creative, and Jeremy and I have talked about this several times, like we have this constant conversation about it, when you find out that one of your beloved mentors or creative, uh, you know, people that you love who's creative or work that's done when you found out they do, they've done something kind of atrocious. Like, do you separate the artist from the art? And how? if so, how do you do that? Or do you just boycott them? Or, or how do you deal with that? So it's uh, it's definitely an ongoing conversation, but we've sort of taken a, a stance with the public domain. And um, and I'm glad, because it worked out, because we've got, we found this beautiful story by Marie. Yeah, don't be surprised if you, uh, if you see another Marie Corelli some seasons down. I think we're gonna try to get new people on the show each time and listen if we have somebody that uh was a little bit wretched in their day we'll mention it we'll be like this person was not very nice to ladies or something we'll mention all yes, of that yes. stuff we'll always let you guys know what you're getting into megan i think we're good i think we are done with another episode I think so. I'm so excited. Episode seven in the bag. So anything that you guys want to say, please comment below and we'll get back to you. We'd love to hear what you thought of Marie Corelli today. And then next week we have an author that I don't know at all. Um, her name is Megan Morrison and she has a piece called Plug In. Megan is currently working on it now. It's going to be exciting. I've heard the story already. It's really cool. And then also, just so you all know, uh, next week is going to be our last episode for the season. We're going to have a little bit of an intermission before we come back in the second season. We're already looking for really cool authors. So if you are a really cool author, you know what to do. Submit! <laughs> oh, okay. I heard, I heard someone. <laughs> Megan, somebody was really loud. I heard a voice. <laughs> Um, go to our website, Nobody Read Short Stories, where you'll find all of our submission information. Go to our website, and then before you leave today, if you decided to procrastinate pressing the like, please do it now. Um, you know every like helps us like get this podcast across to other people. And if you haven't subscribed, subscri subscribe so that you will be getting this into the in the future. And then for the podcast listeners, you know what to do. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. Megan, I think we're good, right? I think we're good. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.
short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories, funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads short stories anymore.